You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning, Redeemer Odessa. Um, My name is Jordan, and my husband and I and our girls are part of the McLean Community Group. I'm going to be reading our scripture passage this morning. It's from Ephesians um, chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members um, one of another." Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Good morning, church. Glad you guys are here. I'm going to fix this real quick because that's making me nervous. (laughs) Now watch me make it fall. Okay, maybe that's a little better. Glad you guys are here. Uh, If you're new to Redeemer Odessa, we're so glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, Under your chairs, there are Connect cards. We'd love for you to fill that out. If you're more of a techie kind of person, we have QR codes uh, scattered around the building. You can scan that. Uh, We'd just love to get to know you, even get to know we can pray for you, um, and just kind of walk with you, answer any questions you guys might have. Uh, my name is Matt Bertrand, and I get to serve here at Redeemer Odessa. Uh, Tanner and a good number of our folks are on vacation. Apparently, they all planned it at the same time. So, but we're here, and just thankful for Melody coming and helping lead us in worship this morning, or you guys would have to hear me sing, and that falls under church abuse. So uh, just glad you guys are here. Glad to look into this word with you today. And what I want you to do is I want you to picture this scene, okay? So... You are standing before the holy God of creation. He is awesome. He's terrifyingly beautiful. He's holy. You don't even dare lift your eyes up to him for fear and trembling. While being judged, you look down and become keenly aware that what you're wearing to this trial is nothing less than filthy animal skins. Patchwork rags stitched together, stained with the blood of every guilt that is on your hands. 
It stinks. Each ragged piece of this pitiful excuse for dress represents your best deeds, your pride, your accomplishments, all this in light of true holiness. Yet in the middle of this overwhelming shame at realizing that what you once held in such high esteem and valued so much is just garbage and waste, the Son of God steps forward and he removes those filthy rags He removes those patchwork cloths, and he washes away the crimson stains that are on you. And he gives you a new robe. Like a father wrapping up a toddler fresh out of the bath in a clean white robe. Now when this holy God looks upon you, he no longer sees that mess of your best works. No, because you have repented and believed in the work of his son, he sees his righteousness. He sees his holiness, and he declares innocence. He says, you're mine. We're going to be continuing our walk through Ephesians this week. So the book of Ephesians is an epistle. It's a scholarly, fancy word that means letter, okay? And the book of Ephesians was written by Paul to this church that he helped found in the area of modern-day Turkey. He helped father this church, and he's writing them in exhortation and encouragement. He's writing to this group of Gentiles, okay, Gentiles meaning non-Jews, and he's writing to them to encourage them in their faith. They've recently placed their faith in the risen Son of, uh, of God and this risen Christ And now he's trying to help them grow in their faith. What does it mean to be called, changed, and given a new life? What is the church? How should the church act? Remember, these are people who have been far from God their whole lives, be it racially, geographically, politically, spiritually. What we've seen up to this point is Paul laying out a logical framework for this early church. First, they are saved by grace. Grace is the undeserved kindness and merit of God placed upon us. We, just like them, were dead in our trespasses, yet God stepped down and saved us. It was nothing we did. Then he goes on to say that because we as these believers have all been saved, now we should consider ourselves one new people, okay? Vody Bauckham, he's one of my favorite guys, he says that in, from the beginning, there have only been two types of people, two races, God's people and not God's people. Essentially, those that are dead and those that were dead but now made alive. Essentially, what we see is that those that place their hope in the Son of God Instead of becoming their own gods, now we get to unify together. You can have the most desperate people come together, all walks of life, all cultures, and we get to rally together in unity at the foot of the cross. Because we were all these wretches that have been made sons. Now, the church also has to work together, okay? We all have roles to play 
in order to take this message of the gospel out. And in his providence, his providence and his sovereignty, God has given each of us special skills, special talents, special hopes and desires of helping to accomplish this. So up to this point, we've kind of seen Paul really laying out what is the church, how we come together. But now we start to see him take a shift, okay? Now he shifts a bit of his focus on what we are not to be. He's going to hold up for comparison the values of this world in light of what we have been called to by this holy God and what he expects from his people. Ephesus was a dark place. It was full of idol worship, corruption, pagan practices, rampant, deviant sexuality. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Paul is saying, if you want to go out and be a light in dark places, this is how it should be. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. I thank you so much for this church that you've given us. I thank you for the rest uh, that Tanner and his family were getting this week. I pray that you would bless that, Lord. I pray that you would just give all these families safe travel on their way home. Thank you for the hearts that are here this morning, God. I pray that this service would just be uh, glorifying to you, that it would just be a sweet offering. I pray that you would just be speaking through me as we dive into your word. I pray that I would not rely on my own strengths and our own skills, but it just depend upon you and your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would move. I pray that you would bring truth. I pray that you would heal. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Am I getting feedback out there, or is it just me? Is it? Will you make sure that the band mute is on, like all the other mics are off? Sorry, I should have said that earlier. Is that better? Okay. Am I still going? All right. So... Starting in verse 14, it says, Now of this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So what we're seeing is that this admonition is highlighting that Paul has the authority from the Lord. He's not writing this on his own accord, and so because of that, his words have this weight that brings about encouragement when needed, It brings us this freedom to work gladly and to hold these instructions with just this reverence and awe because they are from the Lord himself. What he's saying is, don't live like the world around you. We're not just to blend in and go with the flow. We're not supposed to be like these spiritual chameleons adapting to our environment. I mean, are we copying the culture around us? And are we adopting its practices? I would just ask, like, are people shocked that when they find out that you're a Christian? It shouldn't be this way. And so Paul starts to lay this out. With this verse, Paul is immediately getting to the point. You are set apart. That's what it means to be holy, set apart. We as believers have been called out and made into his special possession. We don't belong to the world anymore. So we should stop acting like we do. That old way, the way of the world, it's futile, it's pointless, hopeless. And these next two verses really hit on that hopelessness of that current day. 
18 and 19 say that they are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them. Due to to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So there's the scene in the last battle by C.S. Lewis where these dwarves have become so cynical that they can't even believe what they're actually seeing. So see what happens in this story is there's this false Aslan that has been reigning kind of tyrannically over Narnia up to this point, right? And because of this, these dwarves have shunned anything to do with Aslan, be it true or false. Aslan being kind of the Jesus character in this story. So finally, the real Aslan shows up, and he begins to create this new Narnia. He starts to make everything right. But these dwarves have become so blinded that they can't even tell where they are now. They can't even tell that they're in Aslan's own country. They're in this new created world. In fact, they're so stuck in their own minds that they still think they're in this stinky little stable being held captive. All they know is the hardness in their own heart. So I'm going to try and do my best Liam Neeson impression as I, as I read this uh, from Aslan. I'm not going to do that impression. Uh, <laughs> they will, it says, they will not let us help them, Aslan explained. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only of their own mind, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. It's kind of like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. He sees with his own eyes these miraculous powers and wonders over all of creation that the Lord is exhibiting plague after plague ravages his kingdom, yet he remains ignorant and prideful. He is being willfully ignorant of God in his midst. We're told that the Lord actually caused his heart to harden, and we might say, hey, that's unfair. The Lord causing a heart to be hardened against him? That doesn't seem right. If the Lord of creation chooses to harden a heart so that he might show his glory and his might and his holy power, then that's his right to do so. We have to understand that so often our definition of fairness falls way, way, way short of a holy God who by all rights should end us for our treason. When we sin, it's like we develop this hard callus over our hearts. And each time it just gets harder and harder. I get determine my reality, right? I get determine my identity. That's kind of the prevailing mindset of this day. I mean, I had no part in creating myself. But I'm for sure going to set my identity up as I see fit. This is like the 2023 version of you can be like God. Remember that from the garden? It was the same lie that Satan gave to Adam and Eve in the fall. We can be like God. And then in the book of Romans, we are told that God handed this world over to its sin. We wanted to be our own gods. So he led us. And what has it led to? The world around us, we see suicide suicide rates have skyrocketed. The world is more lonely than ever, despite how connected we really are. Citizens in the U.S. have amassed over 14 
trillion dollars in debt. This isn't the government. This is us, okay, citizens. $14 trillion in debt. Brokenness of sex and porn addiction with young girls selling themselves online. Young men that would rather sit and look at a screen than to go out and meet a girl, meet someone in a creative relationship and start a family. Kids are being mutilated for life on the altar of Twitter and TikTok. That's a tongue twister. Men and women doing vile things with their bodies, all to the applause of media. Sexual freedom has led to diseases running rampant, not to mention the murder of almost one million babies in the year 2020. That was the most recent number I could find. What about things such as gluttony, alcoholism, laziness, drunkenness? What about maybe more socially acceptable things like working yourself to death? This world is broken and it keeps looking to itself to make it better. It's this vicious cycle of sin that leads to a hardness in our hearts and it's one step over time after another. And before long we realize that we are so much further from God and so much further into this darkness. We're becoming willfully ignorant. And that would be our story, but for the grace of God. That's what we've been called out of, okay? We have been called from that darkness. That alone is praiseworthy. Picking back up in verse 20 and 21, it says, But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and taught him as the truth is in Jesus. What he's saying is, you didn't learn about Christ just so you can go back to living how you want to. And the thing is, we didn't just learn about Christ. We learned him. He's a person. As a believer, we have met and encountered the holy God made flesh. The God who lived the righteousness that we never could live and died the death that we deserved. Okay, think back to that darkness that we were just looking at. Thereby, he has made us holy. He's not just a concept. He's an actual person. Richard Cogan says that we aren't saved by understanding some historical facts, but by the person who lived them. By placing our faith in Christ, we now have his spirit in us. We are intimately tied, and we grow through his sacrificial work. We grow through his sanctifying work. Meaning, yes, we're going to struggle with sin. But by the Holy Spirit working in us, we will grow in becoming more like him. The saving has been done. Praise God. Now we get to develop in these disciplines like reading and prayer, evangelism, as we put our sins to death. We worship. We cultivate holiness as we delight in the person that saves us. He 
It says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupting through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So if you think back to my illustration at the start, it wouldn't make sense just to wrap that white robe around my blood-stained, filthy rags. No, the filth is still going to be there. I might look nicer on the outside, but that filth is still there under the surface. We have to strip down. Be done with that old, futile darkness that leads us only to despair. That old way of life promised freedom, but only left us in prison. We have to be washed and made new with a wardrobe that is worthy of the kingdom that we have been called into. How? It's through the renewing of our mind through the word of God. Again, the book of Romans calls us to be transformed. It's like having a whole new operating system uploaded into a computer that gives it a new set of directives and functions. In his kindness, God has given us his word, which is good for all teaching and training and righteousness. We ask the Spirit to grow in us as we read and to give, the new, give us new desires of the Lord. The Holy Spirit and the Word both feed into each other. The Spirit gives me the desire to read. As I read, I learn more about the Lord. As I learn, learn more about the Lord, I delight more in Him, which gives me more of a desire, and it's continuing to grow that Spirit within me. And it just feeds into the, itself and perpetuates the cycle of maturing in the Spirit. This is what it means to put on the new self. My desires will begin to align more with God's. And it's not just about stopping doing the bad thing, okay? Whatever that may be, we are not called just to stop doing the bad stuff. But it's about replacing that wickedness with holiness. My operating system has been rewritten with new code. And it gives me a new purpose. As we mature, we become dead to that old language. That old programming has no effect on us, and we might have a glitch from time to time, but God is so gracious and patient with us as we, as we grow and mature. Now, you might be thinking, Paul, that's great. That's awesome to hear, but I need some practical steps, just like every good Baptist. Well, ask and you shall receive. Now he starts giving us some practical things. He says in verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Therefore, okay, this is Tanner's favorite thing, so I'm going to try and use his line, right? He says, anytime that we see therefore, we need to stop and see what it's there for. Well, he's saying, therefore, because you have been made new, I don't have the cool mustache like Tanner. Because you have been made new, the old is gone. And you are a new creation. So stop lying. You have been freed from the lies of your former self, from your former life. So speak truth. This isn't really just about not telling little white lies anymore. It's not about fibbing. That's definitely part of this also making sure that we aren't counseling each other with the subtle lies that the culture promotes. 
We want to, to counsel and promote actual, biblical, truthful points that consistently point us back to the gospel. Who do we sound more like whenever we're walking through things with people? Do we sound more like Oprah or Paul? I remember saying one time, and I tried finding it, and I could not, but there's a saying like motivational bumper sticker or a scripture. We're called to be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. We're not called to fly off the hinges in traffic or yell at our kids when they've had an accident. We are called to self-control and patience. Not sinning in anger against our spouse, kids, co-workers. That's definitely part of this. But there's also another level. My good friend, Costi Hen, um, just kidding, he has no idea who I am. But he says that these verses have been misused in the church. We tend to see it as not going to bed angry, right? With a spouse or a loved one. We need to settle this right now before we go to sleep. Don't go to bed angry. But he proposes that if you look at the previous section and where this falls in the middle of all this, you know, this taking off of our former self, putting away sin, that this verse is really focused more on that. We're talking about righteous anger. Anger at the things that God is angry at. We should be angry at our sin. My sin, the sin around us. I should be angry when I run to my phone to escape from my kids. I should be angry that nearly every aspect of our culture is trying to tell kids in mass that God messed up when he created them. And to be your authentic selves, you have to go through these life-changing procedures. We should be seeking out the death of our sin, like John Wick going after the gangsters that killed his dog. I'm angry at the pain and the wreckage that my sin causes. And I want to kill that sin through the power of the Holy Spirit so that it can't hurt anyone anymore. As a church, we should be angry when we see sin affecting our fellow believers and the devastating ramifications that unchecked sin in the church and leadership brings about. We should be angry, but do not sin. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. You have been given everything you could possibly need in Christ. Scheming, corruption, getting one up on the system, those days are over. Remember, we are not to look like the world around us. Everyone is trying to get theirs, regardless of the damage that's left in their wake. I mean, just think about the damage it causes when we hear about such and such pastor caught embezzling funds from the church. Koken again says that the hands that used to take are now the hands that are used to give. We work and we give to the church, we give to the needy, we give to friends, 
We have been given much. And now, because of that, we get to join cheerfully in this giving as well. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. I remember when I realized that God had saved me. It was in the days of MySpace, way back in 2006. You can go ahead and laugh, but it's been a while. Way back in the dark ages of social media. There was this dramatic shift overnight in the posts that I was making. No more quoting Dave Chappelle skits. Thankfully, the Lord saved me from that. It was a very much a dramatic shift. It was like one day to the next. It was October 2006 when that happened. That's not to say that I've perfected controlling my tongue. Unfortunately, I still lose my temper at times, and I've been known to say certain words on roller coasters and water slides. You can ask Parker. But I'm being sanctified. James says that if we could control our tongue, then we would have perfect and total control of our bodies. And it's like this tongue is a powerful thing, and even though it's so small compared to everything else, it can wreck and destroy. Just like how a small flame can start a wildfire. He calls it a restless evil. Unwholesome talk. It's done. Slander, gossip, backbiting, use of derogatory names, all done. Entire churches have been brought low because of he said, she said. Part of this is, you know, garbage in, garbage out. What are we filling ourselves up with? What music are you listening to? What movies or books are you into? How about the people that you hang around? If you're just constantly marinating in this foul, angry language, it'll be on you just like when you walk out of Subway. Again, would people be surprised when they find out you're a Christian because of the language that you use? You are part of a new kingdom with a new language. So whatever is good, whatever is lovely, honorable, commendable, we should be thinking on these things. Now Paul is about to get into who is supremely invested in this stuff, the stuff of the church. Who is more impacted and has more concern for it? And that's the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. William Hendrickson says that Paul is now addressing the most important party in all of this. The Holy Spirit is more invested in the health of this church and the church globally than we pastors, leaders could ever be. He says that Paul, throughout his letters, tries to hammer home the importance of dependence upon the Holy Spirit and that really any good that is in us comes from him. Now, we might often talk about the Father and Son in our churches, but sometimes we don't really do the Spirit of Jesus justice. 
Honestly, sometimes it might be hard to wrap our head around the third person of the Trinity. But we're told that as believers, the Spirit of Jesus now lives in us as our helper in order so that we may grow more and more in holiness. In fact, Romans declares that we can't even truly say that Jesus is Lord without the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That means we can't even come to saving faith without his work. It all depends upon him. Earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, we found that upon saving faith in this gospel, that we are then sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance with God. It's like a legal document in which the king has pressed his signet ring into the wax. This is a mark of authenticity. You are now guaranteed eternal life in the presence of the God who made you. And it's as binding as law. Knowing this, we must go to him and ask him to grow us into the fullness of faith. Let us go to him and ask us to keep us from ask him to keep us from temptation. Keep us from grumbling. Keep us from greed and gossip. Again, like in the book of Exodus, we see that these Israelites are running around the desert. And after being freed from this oppression of the Egyptians, we see that they constantly grumble complain, and they even long for the days of slavery. This is what it's like to grieve the Spirit of the Lord. He has saved us from so much darkness, and he's freed us from the prison of our sin, yet we find ourselves often wanting to go back into that prison cell. Thankfully, the very one to whom we don't want to grieve is the one who can actually help us. If we just ask, Ask for him to align our hearts with his. We need to repent of our unbelief and ask for his help to believe in what the gospel says about us. And with that, we need to let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we can repent and be done with bitterness and envy that eats us We can be done with unrighteous anger. This is a big one for me. Uh, I am constantly praying for the Lord to help me be slow to anger with my kids. I love them so much, but yet it often seems like the threshold with them is much lower than with everyone else. I ask forgiveness of them often. I repent and I go to the Lord. I hate that sin that's within me, and I'm asking him and his power to help free me of it. Let us pray that the Lord would help us to pray for those that we disagree with instead of slandering them. Let us pray that we'd have the ability to speak encouragement and to edify each other instead of finding ways to tear each other down. And then to wrap it all up, Paul, like any good teacher or leader, he's given us our directions, and now he gives us our why. In verse 32, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus told his friends in the book of John 
that our love for one another would be a testament to the world that we are his. When we stop and examine our own stories, our lives of sin and despair that we have been set free from, how can we possibly withhold love and forgiveness from one another? He forgave us so much. Let us be quick to forgive. He is a tender father to us, so let us be soft and gentle when dealing with one another. Should we tolerate sin? Absolutely not. Should we call each other out in a loving way and point them back to the cross? Absolutely. We should want to treat each other in our family of faith the way that we have been treated by a holy God. Church, this world is hurting. It, it is chaotic, and it seems like it only gets darker every day. People eating themselves alive out there. It is not our job as a church to be cool. It is not to have the slickest production or the biggest programs. It's not our job as a church to be relevant to culture. This culture doesn't even know what it believes because they have absolutely no foundation to stand upon. Our job as the church is to be holy as he is holy. In the Old Testament, those people and objects that were set apart for the Lord, they were splattered with blood. It was a messy ordeal. Entire swaths of people would be sprinkled in blood. The altar, the tools for worship, everything that belonged to the Lord would be covered in blood. It was a sign that they were set apart. Now, we as believers, we as the church, we're not covered in the blood of bulls and goats. No, we are covered in the blood of God's own Son as the perfect sacrifice for us, thereby making us His for all time. We grow in holiness by preaching the gospel and holding fast to Scripture, by loving each other through our struggles and showing grace while pushing people to become more like Christ. We do this all while we're relying on the Holy Spirit to empower us and help us defeat sin. Listen, we have nothing to offer the world if we look just like them. Why would they come to us? That'd be like a deaf man asking another deaf man to describe a piece of music. So I'd ask, how often do you pray for our church? I know that I've been convicted of my lack of prayer over us. The Lord has been very gracious to grow me in that as I pray for us. We need to pray that our church would be a light. That the light of the gospel that God has given us would shine out to a broken world in need of a Savior. We need to pray for the Holy Spirit to convict us and to move and free us from our sins so that we can represent the one who saved us. Again, the saving work has been done. Praise God. Now let us go to him to empower us to look more like him to a world that's hurting and broken. Let's pray.